Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on Krista K. Thomason. She's an associate professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College. She was the Philip L. Quinn Fellow at the National Humanities Center. Her areas of expertise include philosophy of emotion, moral philosophy, history philosophy, and political philosophy. Some of her publications appear in philosophy and phenomenological research, European Journal of Philosophy, Kantian Review, and The Monist. She's the author of the book, Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life. And she's been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, NBC News, and CNN. And her newest book, coming out October 31st, is called Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. Welcome, Krista. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. And I want to say, man, I was telling Alan, I think you're going to be one of our best guests of the year. I was really looking, I was legitimately so looking forward to this podcast just because of the many topics that we're going to cover that I'm super interested in. But also, like, I don't think we've yet done an episode on just feelings specifically, right? No, 100%. Yeah, they, not on feelings. Oh, no. Yeah, okay. not on like feelings, like, you know, psychotherapy, depression, or whatever, anxiety, but yeah, not on sure. feelings. So this is going to be super interesting. Nice. Okay, so in her book, Christero, negative emotions, both inside and outside philosophy, are widely seen as op obstacles to a good life. Since bad feelings prevent us from living well, so the reasoning goes, we need to do something with them. Some people argue that we have to do our best to not feel them. Others that we just need to feel them in the right way or to channel them into something good. Oh, we're definitely going to get into that. Uh, <laughs> if, we are, if we are really going to value bad feelings, we need to reject the first premise of the argument. Bad feelings are not obstacles to a good life. They have a bad reputation that they don't really deserve and our suspicion of them from comes from mistaken ideas about what human emotional life is supposed to look like mm -hmm. just like worms are part of a garden bad feelings are part of a good life okay so i'm sure even when you wrote this i'm sure there was an intuitive sense of like this can't be true right uh, i think <laughs> right right right. there had to have been a sense of like wait I, I know i'm saying this and this sounds like uh what's the word really um really sort of shocking uh but like there's a part of you that must have been kind of like you know there was some uh sort of intuitive telling you that this must be off right so mm -hmm. when we think of negative emotions you know me from a psychotherapeutic perspective we often people think of let's ha how to manage them how to quell them um they are obstacles in many cases especially when you're thinking of major depressive uh let's say episodes or other types of disorders but yeah so how did you come to this conclusion how did you come to see emotions not and what's interesting is this is not like a typical how-to book it's not like oh okay cool like emotions are good but oh, i'm sorry emotions are somewhat bad but they're also kind of good and then like here's how to manage them you're like no we should actually try to accept them how did that happen <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's uh yeah that's a great question it, it came from both uh my role kind of inside of philosophy like my scholarship inside of philosophy where i do think there is this kind of i'm not going to call it a bias that's too strong but there's a there's a prevailing idea that negative emotions are problems they're either um obstacles to living well or they they reflect something bad about you they reflect your you know a flawed character they reflect um that you've made some kind of like mistaken or irrational judgment uh, you, there's a whole bunch of different reasons that people will get for like what's wrong with them right but then not only that it just as like a regular person living in the world you talk to people all of the time who are kind of constantly judging themselves for their bad feelings who are um convinced that they have to sort of you know the like good vibes only thing is really powerful for people uh that if you think any negative thoughts then bad things are gonna happen like there's just a really strong resistance to negative emotions and i just and as as a 
again, just as a human in the world, I've spent a really huge portion of my life having my feelings corrected, right? So like, you know, you feel bad and people are like, oh, look on the bright side or you get angry and they're like, no, you need to calm down. Like I can't count how many times I've been told to calm down in my life, right? So uh, I just started to think like, is, are we, are we right about this? Like, are we right about how horrible these negative emotions are specifically when, you know, you read stuff from, ancient philosophy and people are talking about these kinds of emotions like way, way back in the day, eons and eons ago, we've been having the same conversation. And you start to think, well, but wait a minute, like think about how many times you've been angry in your life. Are you dead? Have you killed everyone you've ever been angry at? These emotions are ubiquitous. They've been with us forever. We feel them all the time. Are they really as terrible as people make them sound? And that was sort of the the impetus behind the whole book was just to think, well, I don't know. Look, maybe our emotional lives are just more holistic than we think. And maybe it's time for us to think about them in complex ways rather than like constantly trying to force ourselves to only feel positive things all the time. No, that's definitely true. I just, I wonder, I mean, like, for example, stoicism, right? I mean, wouldn't you think that that was sort of invented? I mean, I'm just speculating here, but to sort of combat the sort of the most, like the most extreme negative emotions or the most toxic negative emotions, like at least, so I understand that, uh, for example, uh, like a mild negative emotion uh, probably isn't so bad. It, it can teach you uh, maybe something about yourself. Um, uh, in your book, for example, there's this one part where somebody's envious about their neighbor's car, right? And okay, well, if they ask themselves, you know, why am I feeling envious, right? They, they could maybe think that, oh, well, maybe uh, I would like to be successful enough to get a car like that. Maybe I should work harder. Maybe, uh, maybe I should just realize that um, I don't actually need that car. And why am I feeling this uh, negative emotion? And in that sense, yeah, sure. Uh, definitely. Uh, but when it comes to like, maybe, I don't know, like toxic anger, like to the point where um, it can cause a, a, a terrible rift or misunderstanding with a friend or a partner. Uh, and generally just lead to misunderstandings in general, whereas if it was, you know, quelled, so to speak, or if you realize that, there's something wrong with having the emotion itself. Um, maybe then it wouldn't happen. Oh, can I add on to that really quickly? Though. So you know what's so interesting? Uh, from what I remember from the episodes that we did with Massimo. So we had on Massimo Pili, which mm-hmm. you, I'm sure. Yeah, so you know Massimo, his un- understanding and interpretation of stoicism is literally you take the bad emotions, all of them, and you transform them into the good emotions, all of them. That's why he and I have always disagreed. I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have to say I disagree with that too. <laughs> no, no yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up, actually. So, so let me kind of like clarify, right, a couple of things. Um, one, I think it's really interesting when we talk about negative emotions, we are very prone to immediately start talking about their most extreme or their worst versions, right? And so that's not to say that there aren't bad versions of these emotions. Sure. There, there are bad versions of good emotions too, but nobody ever wants to talk about those, right? So there are, so it's not to say that there are no bad versions of them, but what you, what I think we might want to start asking is, why is it that when we think about them, we immediately jump to those most extreme examples? Like, why do we take those most extreme examples as like, that's real anger and like the regular average everyday mundane version is somehow like, well, that's fine. But what about the really, really bad kind? 
right? So I, I feel right. like we're sort of, we're a little bit primed to, for some reason, jump to like the immediate, it's what I, in the book, I call this the extreme cases problem. So anytime we start criticizing negative emotions, usually what we do is we start with their most extreme cases and we criticize those. And then we use those as a way of arguing against them as a whole. Which mm -hmm. I think is like okay, that there's something a little bit fishy happening. Well, it's black, it's it's black and white thinking. Sorry, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a very weird premise. It's like oh, you went to the extreme right away, but you're not really holistically, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 But in addition to that, right, there is this question about what's the real source of the trouble, and that I think is something we we may want to like think a little bit more about in our thinking about emotions, right? So, so when we're talking about angry people, for example, is their problem? that they feel too much anger like is that really what's happening with that person i tend to think that what's happening with that person is that they've developed some really unhealthy coping mechanisms for mm -hmm. their anger or mm -hmm. their anger is a reflection of some other deeper problem that they have usually some kind of like instability in their sense of self or something like that or in your regular old everyday case people who are quick to anger oftentimes are just um they lack a sense of proportion. And like, that's actually what we want most of the time from people. So like, is it bad to totally fly off the handle at something really small? Of course it is. But is that the problem, is the problem with anger or is the problem with this person has no sense of significance or proportion or perspective? Like they can't sort the like really important things from the not important things. Right, and that is a problem regardless of what emotion goes with it, right? So that's a kind of like, there's something going on with that person, but it may not be like the source of the trouble may not be the emotion itself. So is that the problem with um, like controlled emotion saints? Uh, they, they basically try to just kind of do away with emotion in general, instead of sort of making distinctions between maybe, um, the, maybe perception of an emotion and still allowing themselves to feel it. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem, but I think yeah. it's, I think part of the problem too with the controlled emotion saints, like you're more like really hardcore stoics, right? Um, is actually what they're asking you to do is really reform the way that you see the world in a pretty major way, right? Mm -hmm. And so when, if we're, if we're, if that's what they're asking for, I think we kind of have to ask ourselves, is it a good idea to sort of reform your, your view, like your view of the world that drastically. And, mm -hmm. and this is, I think probably my, this might be my fight, although I don't know, I haven't actually like sat down and fought with folks like Mastema, but, like, <laughs> but I think that like, I think my, my disagreement with some of the kind of like neo-stoicism is that I think they want to say, you can do a lot of this work without sort of this radical reformation of your beliefs about the world. And where I disagree with them is that actually, I think you, you can't. Like if you go back and you read the original Stoics, mo many of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are sort of saying, you've got to really correct all of your beliefs about the world and come to see the whole structure of the universe in a really different way. And then your emotions will reform once you do that, once you correct all of your beliefs. But then you got to ask the question, like, should we actually adopt those views? Like, should we radically reform our views about the world just so we can get rid of these negative emotions? Are they that bad that mm. they require this like radical reorientation toward the world? I don't know. That that seems like kind of a big ask.
Well, oh, so interesting. Okay, so now we're getting into CBT therapy, uh, therapy and territory. This is what I do. So oftentimes when people come in, I mean, what they want is they want to help, you know, they want help with alleviating their emotions. So sometimes it's extreme or they'll say, well, I don't want to feel these negative feelings anymore. I mean, that's more of a rare case. But oftentimes what they learn with CBT is that, oh, it's a great way for you to manage your emotions. And how do you do that? By reforming or reinterpreting your beliefs. And, you know, when you think about beliefs, I mean, often they're pretty much just interpretations of the world or their interpretations of experiences that you have. And so I would argue that most of the time, that's actually what people want. So let me just be clear because it's more complicated than that. I think it's 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 there's a sort of confusion or attention within people. So often what happens is a person says, yes, I do want to have these other values because I don't want to feel like shit all the time, but I have these other values that it's really kind of hard to let go of. And then there's this other part of my brain, this inner chatter that's kind of telling me, no, 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 don't do that, right? If you could just get through this particular storm, you can eventually get all the things you want and that'll make you happy, right? Very black and white. So, okay, if, so here's, I, I guess, let me just see how I can frame this. Okay. So if my thinking is more so CBT, that yes, we do have to focus on beliefs because beliefs matter, I think more than anything else, especially in terms of the person's psyche. Maybe it's me minimizing emotions. I don't know. But as you said, they are the foundations of everything, right? Uh, so then why wouldn't we want to reinterpret our beliefs or why wouldn't we want to shift our views of the world? Yeah. So this is, so this is getting into some really interesting territory where I think I actually don't have that much disagreement with like folks who do kind of like clinical therapy, right? So like, so I have some complaints about like in the book, I have some complaints about like empirical psychology and a lot of, you know, like brain scan stuff. Um, but I have way less to complain about with the, my folks over in the sort of clinical side, because I feel like a lot of what's happening there is very, you know, in keeping with a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in. Um, so, so are there times when your negative emotions are like impeding your flourishing? Yeah, like there are times when that can happen, no doubt. And so then the question becomes, how do I flourish? Right. Um, and I think that's where there can be some disagreement and, and not everybody's going to be the same. Right. So like there are going to be some people who are so wrapped up in certain kind of value systems, like you say, beliefs or judgments that the negative emotions are coming along with them because they're attached to these particular kind of judgments, beliefs or whatever. And then we do really have to restructure those beliefs because those beliefs are not helping you flourish in some way. Right. I think there's a pretty big area and this is not this like doesn't cover people who who want to seek out therapy because they're like they feel like they're not being able to flourish. There are there's still this like below the therapy threshold level where folks I think are challenged by their negative emotions but not necessarily in such a way that that it's like preventing them from living their lives or preventing them from flourishing. And so my sort of I, th I feel like my positionality is I'm coming from a place where I'm saying, you know, you, you think that the key to you living better or feeling better is to get rid of these bad feelings. But what if you could do it differently? Like, what if actually you could live better by accepting them instead? So that's not going to cover folks for whom like you know, the pathology of their negative emotions is preventing them from actually flourishing. Like then they might really need therapy and, you know, there might be some like important work that they need to do. But I feel like there's actually quite a few people who are, don't meet that threshold, who still need to think differently about their negative emotions. And, and for them, I don't know that changing belief structure and all that sort of stuff could help. It might, but that's not the only option. Like another yeah. option might be let's rethink what we imagine when we imagine what mental health looks like. Right. That's right. Yeah. And also uh, from a psychological perspective, you could make the argument that when you're feeling a certain emotion, uh, 
people tend to backwards rationalize why they're feeling that emotion, right? So if, for example, somebody feels something and then they have resistance to feeling that, right? And then they uh, start to wonder, why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't feel this way. And they invent a story about what's happening. And then this kind of leads to a vicious cycle of then there's that story perpetuating, leads to more emotion, emotion leads back to thought, and then that keeps happening. But you could make the argument that, oh, if you actually completely felt and, you know, quote unquote, accepted the emotion that you're feeling, let it run its course, then you might solve for that problem of where you have that feeling. Like if it runs its course and it's gone, then you you could stop that vicious cycle essentially by the way i actually want to agree i want to agree with both of you so i love that and that's actually a, a great so what both of you are saying are great counterpoints to my arguments uh so technically i am a cbt therapist but i will give you a great counter example uh so one of my clients she has severe ocd and so uh, what do i what do we do right we do talk journaling reframing thoughts etc and so one of the one of the sessions that we had she's like yeah you know i was a little bit afraid to tell you this but she's like honestly i like the thought journal and i like that it's like a tool in my you know whatever toolbox or my compartment or whatnot. But she's like, honestly, man, what I found to be the most helpful is actually just like riding the wave of emotion. So I'll feel the feeling. And then I'll, after a while, I'll be like, okay, that's kind of stupid that I think that. And then I'll still keep feeling it. And then the feeling will just kind of dissipate. And then I'll go do something else. It might come back like 10 minutes later, but she's like, that seems to be the most helpful because she's like, when I do the thought record, thought spirals happen. And then I get lost in the like negative thinking. And then she's like, oh my God, then I can't find any of the counter evidence. And so for her, it seems like for us, I mean, we still, by the way, do the thought journal, but it yeah. seems like for her, she needs the support of it. So like, if you were to ask her, uh, do you find like CBT effective? She would say yes, but only in therapy or like, let's say hypothetically doesn't have to be me but if somebody else is doing it with her but if she, she's on her own she's like i don't want anything to do with it i'd rather just ride a wave and it just comes and goes so act therapy is like that so it's very much yeah. kind of in line yeah it's in line with what you're doing and and super quick question so the the thought journal that you're referring to that's where they write uh what they're thinking and then uh good things uh about what they were no 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 they they write close. down their thoughts and then they reframe the thoughts yeah close so okay so thought journal i'll go through it really quickly so the first part is pretty much what the event was so you're interpret you're interpreting the event right so the first part is what's the event then the second part is the emotions and feelings part you would rate them from a zero to a hundred comparing to the comparing to, to them to the worst it's ever been right so anxiety let's say 50 percent. the next part is the negative automatic thought that's essentially your interpretation of the event if you get an f on the test you might think i'm a failure the next part is evidence for then evidence against what will my friends say to me if I had this thought? Am I jumping to conclusions? Are these particular distortions that we talked about involved? And then if I were going to reframe the thought, if I would, with the evidence for and against the belief in the back of my mind, would I have a different understanding of it? So if yes, then you're going back to the emotions part and you're asking yourself, okay, if you started off with anxiety and anger, uh, did it diminish? And if so, how much? And then also the other point I always make to, uh, to clients and to everybody generally is that, that you never want to go to zero because your anxiety is always telling you something or your sadness or whatever whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So if the kid fails the test, and I used to do this with kids uh, when I was a child therapist. So when kids failed the test, like I want them to feel bad. I'm like, dude, like you were playing video <laughs> games all night. Like you should feel bad. So I think there are two distinct forms of personalizing, you know? Yeah. So one form says, okay, I failed because I'm a loser and I'm an idiot or whatever. And the other form of personalizing says, yeah, I didn't fail. I failed because I didn't study enough. Yeah, dude, you literally failed because you didn't study enough. You should have some <laughs> anger toward yourself. <laughs>
Okay. Yeah. I was about to ask, like, is that an example? That's not exactly. So, uh, cultivated, um, uh, cultivated yeah. emotion saints. That's not, ex is that kind of like an example of how they would have, I would argue it, not. Or not quite. Yeah. I would argue not. But no, go ahead, Krista. Yeah. No. So the thing about the cultivated emotion saints is they're, they're really define themselves, I think, in contrast to the controlled emotion saints, right? So the, you look at the controlled emotion saints who are saying, got to get rid of these, got to transcend them, got to just get over them, you know, radically reframe my beliefs so that they don't ever appear. And then your your cultivated emotion saints come along and say, well, that can't quite be right because they are, there is something valuable about some of these experiences, right? So there's, look, anger can be good. Anger seems important and valuable in some ways. Well, so, so maybe it's not smart to get rid of them altogether, but then they then sort of go, well, it's, it's fine to have them. You just have to have them in all the right ways. Mm, right. And so that's okay. the part where I think we can get ourselves in trouble for two reasons. One, um, look, we can have some kind of influences over our emotions. We also don't have complete control over them, right? So like mm -hmm. we have way too many examples of people, uh, you know, trying to make themselves feel something that they don't or trying to stop themselves from feeling something that they do. And it just doesn't work that way. Our emotional lives. And you you yourself might have had, I certainly have had my own experiences with this, where you expect yourself to feel something and then you get into the situation and you absolutely don't feel that way. You feel the opposite. Yeah. You feel something totally else. And you're surprised even by yourself, right? Your emotions can surprise you and take you off guard in all kinds of ways, right? So I, I don't think we need to try to minimize that feature of them. The fact that they're sort of independent, right? They have a little bit of a life of their own. And the reason I don't think we need to minimize that and try to train them and manage them, you know, all the time is that they do play this important role. Like Leon was saying, they do play this important role of alerting you to things. Sometimes they alert you to things that you're not yet aware of, mm -hmm. right? So like, how many times have you been in a situation where you're like, why am I not happy or why I'm, I'm feeling uncomfortable or something is wrong, but I can't quite pinpoint it. And then right. later on down the line, sometimes those feelings are just feelings and they go away. But then sometimes later on down the line, you think, wait a minute, you know what? That was trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't listening because I was trying to convince myself that I was supposed to be happy in the situation right. that I wasn't happy in. Yeah. So I think emotions can only play that role. And it's an important one, that role of kind of like self-discovery, what, what matters to you, what you care about. I think they can only play that role if we give them a leash, right? Like mm -hmm. we have to kind of let them have some independence, let them sort of do their own thing and not kind of constantly try to manage them. So that, that I think, that's my kind of beef with the cultivated emotion saints is because they sort of think like, even if it's okay for you to feel them, you've always got to feel them the right way. You've got to keep right. them in the box of like what's appropriate or what's not. And I think sometimes they do their most important work when they're not in that box. Right. I'm sorry, man. You were right. Yeah, when I said I disagree, no, no, that was it. I thought you meant the other version, the control uh, version. Yeah, yeah, I was like, wait, that's uh, not control. Yeah, you were. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that's very interesting, and why I love your book too, is because there was I don't know if you could see it back here. There's this book. Uh, it's called The Power of Now. I knew you were right? going to refer to it. So, when, <laughs> so when I was uh, in my early twenties, I read that book for the first time. Completely changed my life. Right. I I was somebody who's like really neurotic, thinking all the time. It introduces you to this idea of like, oh, there's this, there's the ego, this voice in your head. And um, uh, you basically uh, react all the time to like the stories in your mind, but these stories are not you. And uh, once in, when, once you uh, realize that there's a sort of space between you and that uh, narration going on, 
and all that. And it's actually a, it's a really nice message. It's, it's, it's good. However, the way I took it was like, oh, okay. So basically everything that I was thinking or feeling that was, that felt bad or negative, I kind of tried to discard by being present to the moment, right? Like whenever I felt that, no, 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 just be present now, 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 that kind of idea, right? But then I was never actually allowing myself to feel what it is that might've been going on or let those signals tell me. It was almost like a form of escapism, right? And Mm -hmm. that's interesting because, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a fault of the book itself. It's probably my perception, maybe, I don't, I don't think know. so. I, I think, from what I understand about him, I think that was the interpretation he had too. It, dep- it depends because technically, if you're if you're, you could also argue, oh, if you're present, then if an emotion, you know, you feel, you know, you would let it run its course too, arguably. Right, but would, I don't think no. But I'm saying your interpretation is Toll's interpretation. I'm not sure. Oh, I think you're right. That's what I'm saying. Well, so what's <laughs> but what's interesting is that's that's an example of basically uh that controlled emotional scent yeah, yeah. essentially mm-hmm. right and um yeah just from reading your book it kind of just kind of reminded me of that and sometimes i still fall into that thing where oh i'm trying to you know um manage what i'm feeling instead of sort of let it run its course or what is this emotion telling me like mm-hmm. what am i not seeing can i make a really quick nuanced distinction please what i think yeah, you're yeah, saying yeah. is actually controlling your emotion as opposed to managing i think what we talk about in, with cbt that's managing it you know reducing it uh you know making it work for you so to speak what i think is you're doing is you're trying to suppress it in that way yeah so mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know it's funny our I think a lot of the contemporary discourse around negative emotions is 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 difficult and kind of conflicting, right? Because there are there's a lot of folks. I just I was just reading this. I was um, just reading this article because I was looking for examples of this very thing. I was reading this article that was in the New York Times back in April. That was about it was called like "Lean into your negative emotions. It's the healthy thing to do," right? And so right. in the in the article, it was talking about how you shouldn't try to suppress them. You should just feel them, etc. But what was kind of funny about it is that the the reasons they were giving for why it was a good idea to lean into your negative emotions were things like, well, if you feel it, it'll go away faster. Mm-hmm. If you feel it, it'll make it not so strong. If you mm-hmm. if you if you try to stop it, you're gonna feel worse. You're gonna feel more bad feelings. Interesting. Right. And so every all the reasons that were being given for why you should lean into your negative emotions were so, so that you could avoid more of them. Or mm-hmm. different ones or feeling it longer yeah. and so i was like but if there's nothing wrong with the negative emotions to start with well then why do we continue to try to like do this stuff like why is all of the reasoning that we do about them based on trying not to feel them for as long right letting right. them huh. sort of like just get out and vent and like oh yeah it, like everything we, we're very i just think our thinking about them is really kind of confused i think we are really really resistant to them for reasons that i don't i in my own kind of thinking about it i don't fully understand what we're so afraid of 
Yeah. And by the way, so it's interesting that you bring that up. So look, I don't know whether it's a general statement or how true it is, but uh, anecdotally, at least I would even say probably not even just anecdotally, but like people who significantly and have, like, let's say, frequent and intense bouts of, uh, I don't know, let's say depression, anxiety, whatever. And let's say they're really sensitive, right? So you would have like the highly sensitive personality structure. They actually feel their feelings all the time. So if you, <laughs> and, you know, and I see this in my practice, right? So if somebody were to say, like, let's say if I yeah. were, you know, their therapist or something, and I would say, oh, well, you know, if you just like allow your feelings just to come out or whatever, right? They're going to be less intense or less frequent or whatever it is. They're going to be like, dude, I feel like this all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm not even sure like how good that information is to say like, oh, well, the reason why you're depressed is because like two years ago, you just weren't allowing yourself to feel the grief and sadness. I don't know, man. I know it's like in clinical sort of parlance. Yeah. It's uh, it's I mean, I guess it's a self-evident truth. You know, mm -hmm. I don't really know how true that is, man, because, again, there's so much contradicting evidence of people who feel feel their feelings all the time who cry like instantaneously over you know talk about perspective right so few things or many very many things make them cry and few things actually are uh i guess sort of give them a sense of stability and then yeah they feel their feelings all the time so i mean it's hard to say like oh dude yeah you're not feeling them enough <laughs> sure but then i guess i wonder so so and and you know this is not my this is your expertise definitely not mine but with especially with things like anxiety and depression, right? So like I have, you know, people who are really close to me who have like very bad anxiety disorders, right? And and it's actually not I wouldn't describe the problem as a problem with feelings. Like I would describe the problem actually as a problem with the way that disorder has structured their thinking. Right. right? And okay. so like and so a lot of and so a lot of what's going on is like there's like a, a different sort of thinking is happening. And yeah, you might think like, yeah, if a very different sort of thinking is happening, then the emotional life is going to follow suit and is going to like do all sorts of things that are that are sort of like wrapped up in that very different way of viewing the world. So I kind of mm. I mean, I think I want to make a distinction between anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, and also like just feelings of anxiety and depression that are not necessarily attached to a disordered way of thinking. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I have so many things to say about uh, your first comment about like, well, you know, uh, people who have, let's say, disordered beliefs or disordered thinking. Um, so and now I'm actually going to make this a little bit more philosophical. So I'm sure, obviously, you know, the human statement of that reason is a slave to the passions. So obviously not true necessarily. I mean, technically, it's supposed to be bidirectional where, you know, you have sort of certain preferences and then you have obviously goals and, you know, perspectives of how to, let's say, get there or get yourself to manifest them for lack of a better term. Uh, but then also, obviously, reason is supposed to quell your passions, meaning you tell yourself, oh, hey, this person is really terrible for me. Uh, I probably shouldn't date them, etc. Right. Okay. So what's so interesting is that, yes, so there's a disordered way of thinking and there's also a disordered way of feeling. So in anxiety and depressive disorders, it's actually bi-directional. So what you tend to get, so it's hard to, it's a chicken and egg problem. It's hard right. to say what comes first. So we often say that they just go together. So a person who has severe anxiety, what they could do is they could do something called emotional reasoning and they could say to themselves, well, I'm anxious, therefore I'm in danger. And then if they're in danger or they think they're in danger, confirmation bias. Now they're going to look for all the reasons why they're in danger. Uh, now they have further proof that reinforces the belief. Guess what? Now that reinforces the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So often the problem is not only do they just take their their feelings super seriously, yet they yeah. also take their beliefs super seriously. And it's really hard to kind of entangle yeah. that. So, I mean, obviously medication kind of focuses more on the beliefs. Uh, I, if you're ACT, probably, you know, that focuses more on the feelings part. Uh, I'm sorry, me medication focuses more on the feelings, just like ACT. And then mm -hmm. CBT 
CBT focuses more on the beliefs. But yet, what makes it so difficult is what you and why, by the way, the literature shows that it's usually medication and therapy that works best. You need to tackle it from both ends. And the reason why is it because when you often challenge the beliefs, the feelings are so strong. It's as though they're like preventing the person from challenging their beliefs. And then obviously, if it's just medication, a lot of times they're like, well, I still have this nagging thought that I'm kind of in danger. So, oh, I actually have an example. One of my patients said this to me. So when he started taking anxiety medication, he's like, something's wrong. And I was like, why are you having like side effects? He's like, no, no, no. I'm not worrying. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's what it's supposed to do. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, the fact that I'm not worrying is really problematic. And I'm like, why? And now we're getting into the beliefs. Okay, why do you need to constantly worry? What's right. that going to do for you? How does that help you in the long run, et cetera? Yeah, but the medication itself wasn't enough. So instead of worrying, now that's, you know, kind of quelled. Now on top of that, what he's doing is he's wondering why he's not worrying all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you said that about... um sort of taking your feelings seriously, right? So, and that's something that I want to be sort of careful about when we're thinking about how to live with feelings. So listening to them, asking yourself, what is this feeling telling me? The answer to that might be nothing, right? It might turn out it, because, because, precisely because our feelings do have this kind of independence from, right? And they have a little bit of a life of their own. They're like, I, I'll give you myself as an example. So, you know, I've been teaching now, this is my 13th year at Swarthmore. So um, absolutely every single semester, I have a massive amount of nervousness on the first day of class. Is it because I'm unprepared? No. Is it because I feel like I'm, you know, some, something's going wrong? No. Those feelings of nervousness don't mean anything. They just mean I'm nervous and there's that's sort of it, right? It's a new semester, whatever. I could come up with little explanations for it, or I could just say, look, I've I've thought about this. I've listened to my feelings. I've tried to kind of like think about what the reasons are. There aren't any. And that's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm sort of like duty bound to get rid of my nervousness just because it doesn't have any grounds. Rather, it's perfectly fine for me to recognize that it doesn't have any grounds and right. that I'm just sort of feeling it. Right. So for my money, that's you're, you're still you're not necessarily like wishing your feelings away. You're not criticizing yourself for feeling them. It's perfectly okay for you to feel them and recognize that there are no grounds for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's not like, that's a way of sort of, that's a way of quote, taking them seriously without necessarily thinking there must be something behind them. Right. Wait, so then I have to ask, because you said also that you don't really agree with the perspective that feelings are irrational necessarily, because yeah. that's, a yeah, that's a really popular kind of way of viewing it to say, okay, here are the sort of rational feelings, mm -hmm. here are the irrational ones, and obviously in CBT, right. going back to that, you would change them, right? You would change them yeah. to the more rational one. Okay, why would you disagree with that? Well, I just don't think, I think we have a, it's harder to explain what you mean when you call a feeling irrational, right? So there are Here's a feel like here's a feeling that's not intelligible. You could talk about feelings that aren't intelligible, right? So like I I get this example in my first book where where I'm like if somebody's if I say I feel shame and people are like why and I'll be like cuz there's toast in the toaster. Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? Like that doesn't like people would be like, what are you even talking about? There'd have to be some special story for like what the toast signifies or something, right? For that to even make sense. So that seems like an emotion that's like almost not intelligible in that other people can't even understand like how I got myself there, right? Mm -hmm. But then there are feelings that are, for some people, would look at as like groundless, right? But maybe they are picking up on something that's like outside of the normal boundaries of what the reasons that we like typically feel these feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So like my mother-in-law is afraid of flying. 
people like people are so quick to jump in and start going like, yeah, but flight statistics and blah blah blah, plane crashes are really rare and da 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 da. da. Okay, <clears throat> so so maybe excuse me. <clears throat> So she might be picking up on, like, that's one way of quelling somebody's fear, but she's also really claustrophobic. Mm. So, like, what's happening with her fear of flying is not necessarily she's afraid the plane's going to crash, but it's, like, being confined in that, like, tiny space, right, and having no place to really escape. Mm -hmm. So so there's the, the way that we talk about rational and irrational feelings, I think, is actually a lot more... Um, vague and has blurrier boundaries around it than people want to admit like we're just not we're not particularly imaginative about what this feeling may or might may not be picking up on it's very hard i think to give really clear criteria for what makes an emotion rational and what makes it irrational totally and what i love about this too is that a symptom of not trying to make that feeling intelligible into sorry rather not allowing a rationalization or a reason to sort of come out of it is you also don't necessarily, I mean, you, if you inv invent a reason for why you might be feeling something that could take you down the wrong path, essentially, maybe the right path too. And what's wrong or right. That's a dis another distinction altogether. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, that's very interesting. Now, my thing is I have a, I tend to do that actually, where if I have a feeling, I don't, try i mean i don't try to come up with for a reason for it sometimes i'm just having the feeling right um my personal thing and i know we're not really i'm not trying to fully get into this but is i have trouble making a distinction when should i actually be trying to maybe rationalize why i'm having this feeling mm -hmm. versus yeah. no 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 don't even yep. you're just having a feeling mm -hmm. right now and feel it but uh don't invent a reason for it this is this can possibly miss be misunderstood mm -hmm. and mm -hmm mess with you so yeah yeah that's something to think about i suppose but still yeah. but yeah but feeling it is the most important thing for sure yeah. yeah no i think you're totally right i mean and this is the part where i you know even like i present my own arguments in the book and i think this is actually like a, a problem that we're really left with is how do we navigate exactly that thing like how do we live with this thing where look sometimes your emotions you have really good reasons for feeling them and they're trying to tell you something and they're really important and you should listen to them and sometimes you don't necessarily have reasons for feeling them they're not necessarily telling you anything and they're just feelings both of those things are true mm -hmm. and it's really hard to know in what case they're true and so part of the challenge is i think exactly that thing is like living with this part of yourself that has this very deep ambiguity about it and there's absolutely no easy answer to that other than trying to get better at being familiar with them I think right. that's part of what we we you know that's a one one thing to work on is kind of uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett has this great term called emotional granularity that I love right that's like the the thing that she tries to advise is like get to know your suite of feelings all of them like what are they right be able to tell the difference between anger and frustration be able mm -hmm. to tell the difference between disappointment and sadness right and like mm -hmm. know them really well and explore them so that you can have a better sense of like is this thing kind of pushing me in the right direction or is it pushing me in the wrong direction and what I think is just hard it's just hard right being a person is hard living with your feelings is hard what's hard about that is that there's no easy answer right 
Yeah, and I like the way that you kind of layer your thinking in terms of rational and irrational, because that's actually very, in terms of psychology, I would say that's how we think about it. So yeah. when you think about like rational and irrational, it's a little bit of a false dichotomy, not completely. So this is why I would say that, right? So we know that context matter, obviously. And so mm -hmm. you can easily say, so... Um, let me see what's an example that I could use. Uh, okay, so the plain, I'll actually just use your example. Okay, so the plain example, right? So if a person has claustrophobia, I mean, the idea is, let's say we bring them back into another context, right? And we say something along the lines of like, well, you know, this person kind of felt, uh, let's say isolated, kind of felt sort of clustered in, et cetera, you know, for whatever, many, many years of their childhood, et cetera, right? So a lot of times they felt as though, let's say they weren't able to be free, they weren't allowed kind of out of their room, et cetera. So they kind of felt like at some point the walls were caving in. And you can kind of see this even from a perspective, from a, like, actual physical perspective where you start to get the sensation of being boxed in when you're in an enclosed area for way too long. So you can say on one level, it's obviously rational because like, yes, even though they're not boxed in in the plane per se, it's uh, so kind of reminiscent of that, that of course they're going to feel that way. So that's usually how therapy works. So oftentimes, and you know, you and I kind of, uh, Chris have talked about this a little bit about shame-based depression. And oftentimes it's kind of that. So what I mean by that is somebody would say, well, I feel ashamed of myself for being irrational. And therefore the therapy focuses on why you shouldn't. I mean, again, and should shouldn't but why maybe there's a kind of great argument for why you do feel ashamed and why maybe there's some other perspective would say that you shouldn't or maybe wouldn't feel ashamed and okay. so what that would look at is the past and say okay well let's say somebody who has like a phobia right the way we know that phobias work is that let's say uh, you know an example of like a dog if you get bitten by a dog it's going to take you know almost forever for it to sort of dissipate right i mean the simple examples in textbook textbooks will often say like oh if you just like hang out with the dog a couple of times you're not you're, you're free of it right it's not it's not that so it's definitely not that simple uh, so yeah, it takes some time, right? So it takes some for time for our minds and our emotional kind of sides, I guess if you want to call it that, uh, for them to adapt to new environments. So I like that on the one hand, you can say, okay, well, this person has an irrational fear of flying because I mean, obviously on the surface, we know the data or whatever, but beneath that, right, there's a reason behind it. And that reason often makes sense in a different context and in a different life, you know, kind of, so to speak. Totally. So yeah. And why that helps people is because most of the time depression, I would argue is actually more shame-based where like, if you look at people's lives, like, let's say the average Joe would say like, what do you have to be upset about? Your life seems to be, be, be going pretty well, right? And it's because a lot of times people feel ashamed of their feelings. They feel like they're super rational. Uh, they feel like they're not where they should be, et cetera. So, you know, again, dealing with shame, that's, I would argue, probably the most difficult part of therapy, which is obviously also connected to belief systems. But yeah, but I like what I'm saying is that essentially I like your layering of it to say that nothing is really purely rational and probably nothing is really purely irrational. There are different layers and it really depends on how you look at it, you know, which is very existential. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny too, because I, the philosophers who are sort of in my field in philosophy of emotion like this is one of those places where i you know i'm happy to be critical of my own field where i i think particularly people who are working in contemporary you know philosophy of emotion stuff are like really bent on having this distinction between mm -hmm. rational and irrational emotions and i think partly it comes from a place that makes sense where they want to fight against this idea that emotions are like purely irrational forces that just take us over and like push us any way the wind blows and like that's a very controlled emotion state right and so they were they were like really dominant in the history of philosophy for a very long time and so then there was like this turn to kind of try to go like well wait a minute i don't think that's right um and and so what has happened i think is the pendulum has swung like too far back the other way and we're like really wedded to this idea that there are rational and irrational feelings and we can tell the difference and all we have to do is like work harder to figure out what the distinction is and this right. is a place where i feel like particularly clinical psychology is like uh, like way way ahead <laughs> philosophy mm -hmm. at this point where we're like we're working on contact sensitivity and all that kind of stuff where uh, philosophers are like no if feelings are rational you just have to get rid of it I'm like guys mm -hmm. time out yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, that makes sense, you know, because if you have a field that's uh, pretty, like, there's sort of their bread and butter is distinction where, I mean, you know, kind mm-hmm. of uh, defining terms, right? Yeah, and so, like, again, when, exactly. I even ju- yeah, when I even just said that it's kind of layered, right? That's also very difficult. So, okay, now what does that mean? So if it's layered, like, who's to really say what's the emotion? I'm sorry, what's the rational layer? What's the irrational layer? I mean, yeah. it's kind of like it's context dependent, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it also, you have to take the perspective of the other person. What you're really asking is, okay, if I were in this situation, or if, let's say somebody maybe like me were in this situation where we respond the same way so yeah it's i guess because for for a group or a discipline that's sort of so bent on again distinctions and i'm saying this is this thing and that is that thing i can't imagine that this is really tricky because again what we're saying is oh there's overlap and you know and by the way as i'm sure you know a lot of philosophers hate existentialism it's like it's yeah really, yeah 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 it's, it's weird like, it's weird it's way too complicated it's like wait 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 <laughs> so the analytical philosophers will say that yeah. you guys don't take enough time and actually in, in defining your terms and describing you know, defining what something is. And the existentialists are like, hey, we're like all about describing perspectives, man. We can't really tell you about objective truths. Yeah, I'm actually more on the existentialist side where I'm like, objective truths are kind of hard. It really depends on who's looking at it and how they're looking at it. Okay. And yeah, and the other thing is, by the way, I would argue that analytic philosophers would make the worst therapists because these people <laughs> would literally the entire time be telling you like, oh no, you're wrong. Let's look up these terms. Let's look, let's look, here's what you're saying. Let's look up these terms. That's wrong. That's what it says right there and like yeah that's not helpful that's literally not helpful it's like it might be true i guess to some extent you know but yeah it's not helpful because what the person is telling you and just fyi i want to give alan a lot of credit for this uh so when he and i have like somewhat debates arguments whatever so i'm actually what's so interesting is in my like real life i'm actually way more analytical than i am as a therapist i'm more like alan as a therapist so when i'll tell alan something like so so an example of the other day right so he tells me something about like uh so uh, this person who essentially like had some reaction right so she she had this reaction to somebody and then i was like that doesn't make any sense that's like super irrational and then so alan is like no 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 if you look deeper it'll make sense and i'm like oh shit yeah that does make sense but again in my like real life like the first yeah. go-to is like nope that's not that doesn't make any sense this right. was res- this was action a this was response a mm, those two don't kind of go in harmony right it's true so, yeah, but yeah, but you see the analytical mind isn't really oh, yeah. great for therapy because you have to always go into like what is the person actually thinking or what are kind of the motivations or the reasons behind yeah. it. For, right, plus, right. logic isn't always important in uh, yeah. human relationships. Maybe just somebody's yeah. feeling a certain way. And, you know, if you care about that person, you might not care about necessarily being right. Yeah. And you just mm-hmm. want them to feel okay. Ooh, oh, okay. Uh, let's get into that, right? Being right versus being honest. Right. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Being right versus because no, it's the same yeah. thing. So being right versus being compassionate. Yeah. This so, is yeah, yeah. This is there's a uh, related conversation about um because I this happens. People ask me this kind of stuff all the time, particularly with like family relations, right? Yeah. So there are um you know a lot of folks will be like, well, but look, you know, your anger over the situation like isn't productive. It's not. Um, you know, the person's never going to change. Don't give them your energy. Like there's a lot of like of advice people will give about, you know, withdrawing and, and you know, um, you know, getting over your anger over over like some family stuff. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the the sort of negative emotion defender in me wants to say, yeah, but even an angry relationship in some ways is still a relationship. Right. So like mm-hmm. sometimes it is actually better, not all the time, but sometimes it's better to maintain your anger at someone if that 
means maintaining your sense of that person as like a fully fledged human who's responsible for their actions and like you're actually what your anger is doing is trying to like hold them to account for that and also your anger might be continuing to sort of uh remind yourself or or it's a way of you appreciating the fact that you've been mistreated right mm -hmm. and sometimes you have been mistreated and so it's it's not necessarily just because it it takes energy and just because it hurts and just because it's unpleasant doesn't mean it's not important right, right, right to do so maybe you do need to kind of maintain all of that okay all that stuff said right family relationships take a, a backdrop they're against a backdrop of love trust and you know uh sometimes those kinds of relations dictate you gotta sometimes just let stuff go yeah. Even if it's not necessarily like resolved in the way that you want it or whatever, but there's something about a lot of like loving relationships, I feel like requires some flexibility in, in the way that you deal with a person, right. And how they deal with you. There's gotta be, and there's plenty of times where they've extended, you know, love and generosity and trust to you when you didn't deserve it. Mm. So that, that anger anger sort of can get you into like scorekeeping behavior and scorekeeping behavior is not always compatible with actual loving relationships. So it's hard because on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, but anger, I don't want to say like, you can't have anger in a love relationship. That's just patently untrue. Like there's all sorts of, you know, I've been mad at my husband plenty of times. It doesn't mean I don't love it. Right. Those things are like perfectly compatible with each other while at the same time, there can be, there's gotta be some trade-offs depending on what, how the relationship is going to continue or not continue. Right. Oh, then I have a question for the both of you. So when it comes to scorekeeping, did the both of you ever get the sense that the people who are so keen on it are actually uh, pretty biased in the way they keep the score? <laughs> Meaning it's always it's always them who's the good person. They're the yeah. kind one. They're the compassionate one. They're the giving one. But it's always other people who just keep fucking them over. Don't consider them. Don't take their needs seriously. I mean, everybody thinks they're right to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I just said depends on how what kind of what what person you're dealing with the context of that right there i mean i'll i mean even if i say these like high-minded things i of course have score kept i've of course had really oh, yeah. negative emotions sure. all of that mm -hmm. uh but i guess the the extent to which uh you're gripped by them um i guess varies person to Wait, person oh i so. got then I, I can ask you somewhat of a personal question sure how accurate do you think your scores are Probably not at all. See, that's what I'm saying, right? So yeah. people who tend to score keep, you know what it is? I think they take the scores too seriously, man. They're like, this person is like this and I'm like this. I mean, because what I feel like happens is uh, there's there's only a certain amount of variables in any particular situation that you're going to take account of, right? Yeah. And when, when your focus narrows and you're sort of in an angry space, I mean, are you really going to look at the millions of variable variables that encompass that person, yeah. your situation with them, how they've treated you throughout their entire relationship with you, how you've treated them? What have you done good? What have they done good? Uh, how are they with other people? How are they to their parents? Right. Whatever. Like, I'm just mentioning random variables that never that doesn't happen. You'll just focus on a few of them and then rationalize some kind of yes. story. Serve your narrative. I love that. Yeah. Krista, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the folks who I'm familiar with or who are who are the biggest scorekeepers are oftentimes the ones who have um, who are weirdly, yes, biased in their own favor, but also um, who tend to be really fragile selves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the people who keep score are the ones who are who are like deep down unsure of themselves and who are also like really concerned about sort of how things look 
um, how other people view them. So I, I tend to think that most of the time when you meet someone who has a messed up relationship with their negative emotions, chances are good if you dig under the surface, you're going to find somebody who's struggling with their sense of self in some ways, mm. right? And so sometimes the solution to, you know, uh, really... Uh, negative emotions that have that have gotten you to the point where you're not flourishing has to do something with you know fixing that sense of self or letting you see yourself in a different way um the way that i tend to argue about it in the book is just to say look i, I think part of the problem is we are we're sort of constantly looking for our sense of self to be more solid than it ever really will be and that it mm. ever really is and so part of the challenge to like living well with your negative emotions is learning how to like love and accept a self that's always fragile, that's always ambiguous, that, you know, can fall apart at any time that you don't always know, like what, who you are, or what you want and where your life's direction is going to head. And so learning to love a self that's like really fragile is kind of, that's a really hard challenge of being a human, but it's also one of the things I think will get us into a better relationship with our negative emotions. Wait, wait, wait. So are you saying that my fragmented self can never come together in a harmony <laughs> that makes me fully actualized and happy? Uh, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So what's the point of this? Why are we doing any of this? <laughs> Unity is overrated. Harmony what? is overrated. <laughs> what's interesting is, uh, so um, I remember I was listening to a lecture by Alan Watts once upon a time, and he was like, oh, um, you know, um, we we glorify like a holy person uh as like you know and usually when we think of a holy person we think of them as like a saint so like a being of like pure light and all that but he says no actually uh, uh a holy person isn't a saint it's it's actually a person who is whole they've reconciled both their light and their dark sides mm. it, what's interesting to me when i'm like listening to um this conversation as we're, as we're having it of course is that it's kind of making me think about like what what is a whole person, right? Like yeah. maybe somebody who actually can integrate, um, you know, th these, uh, you know, negative emotions or just allow themselves to feel these kinds of things and not try to maintain some some kind of like controlled sense of self, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's very interesting. This is even like the even the th what you were saying earlier, like that that article that you read, uh, where uh, basically. Uh, if you feel your emotions, then they won't last as long, like, or you won't uh, feel bad as long and all that. That actually made me think differently. Like I almost had, I, I like, basically, I feel like I'm on the edge of like a eureka moment as you were saying that too, because it's making me uh, think about that. Like, uh, yeah, I guess probably even me, like when I was saying, oh, you should feel your emotions completely. I think there is that like uh, underlying agenda of not feeling them as long. Yep. And then I feel like that kind of screws with um, the whole point of feeling them fully. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's something it's it's very interesting. And I don't know, th this conversation is making me want to, like, wrap my mind around that more and, like, explore that further. I still can't even get to accept that, like, there's this fragmented self that we're never going to put together. <laughs> like, <that's> <laughs> Oh, and by the way, Krista, if you yeah. are you familiar, and I, this is going to be even funny that I'm mentioning it. Uh, are you familiar with the work of Carl Jung by any chance? 
Yes, but not as much as I should be. Like only on like oh. a surface level. Yeah, you shouldn't really be at all. Uh, so see, that's what. I, yeah, <laughs> how could you say that? I'm not a fan of Carl Jung's oh. anymore. Anymore. Oh, okay. So I, I, I used to be, I guess, somewhat of a disciple back when. So the Red Book is considered to be like his most prominent work. It was mm -hmm. never finished, etc. Yeah. So by the way, the Red Book, which is, uh, I guess, it's like a mystical treaty or whatever. So it starts off as a, as, so it's his journey toward integration, right? So he's mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going kind of deeper and deeper, and I'm going to make more and more like parts of myself conscious. What's so interesting thing and you know spoiler alert here is that he never actually does it so what happens is he kind of goes into a crisis so nobody oh. really knows how like these yeah hallucinations were induced right so it was so he says that he just kind of like uh my vague memory because i read this in 2010 so he uh he said like he kind of just sat back in his chair and he just started like just imagining right and little by little these figures came to him like the anima and the shadow self and philemon you know the wise man or whatever he would call him inside and so like what he wanted to do is he wanted to find a way to kind of bring them about and obviously make them conscious but then also fully integrate them into a whole being uh and then so yeah the book kind of like drops off out of nowhere like i guess i no, i'm actually wrong i think it dropped off at the epilogue but there's like no kind of conclusion to it mm. and yeah he has some sort of like existential crisis and apparently he was just never able to integrate the self so mm. i always found that interesting i was like okay so here's like this sort of wise man gatekeeper they call him like the founder of the new age movement and he wasn't really able to do it so like how can really anybody else so great he has like these fragmented selves that he's i guess more aware yeah. of now mm -hmm. and i you know that seemed to have been i guess maybe not the purpose of the book but at least where it ended but yeah it doesn't really even seem possible it just seems like we have to kind of accept that we are these like i don't know i guess walking contradictions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i mean there's there's a certain sense of we got to pull ourselves in together enough to sort of like form a life right mm -hmm. and like and go forward and and it is always good to think like what do i care about what are my values and like what does matter to me and all that sort of stuff but i guess at this point and maybe i'll change my mind about this at, at this point it just seems to me um you know, life is complicated. And I've known so many people whose lives have just been torched by right. tragedy of various kinds, right? And, or, or something happens and they sort of have to like radically remake who they are and who mm -hmm. they were. And that, the more I see that, the more I think, you know, the story that I tell myself about who I am is a story that, that serves me right now. But, but tomorrow, something could happen and it would throw that whole picture right out the window. And so I, I think part of a uh, part of our, the quest for harmony is a quest for a kind of like control over how our lives go. And, and I think we, we'd actually be better off if we were a little bit more open to the fact that we don't control a lot of how our lives go and that, and that tragedy really can kind of derail and also ecstasy, right, can derail. You meet somebody and they're like head over heels in love and then like your whole mm -hmm. life opens up in a completely different way. Yeah. Um, I think we got to be ready. The way I put it in the book is that I we have to kind of be ready to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's so interesting is um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Irv Yalom. No. Okay, so Yalom, what's so interesting is that, you know, usually when people are like bestsellers in the, I guess, clinical, yeah, I guess it is clinical psychology. I mean, whatever, you can also call it pop psychology. So yeah, so people who are bestsellers, it's more like self-helpy stuff, right? So how do you how do you tame your negative emotions? Right. Yeah, so Yalom's bestseller, it was called Love's Executioner. 
Oh, I think I've, yeah. I've heard the title. I've heard the title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the point of it, right? So he takes idyllic love and he bludgeons it. I mean, so there are a bunch of cases. I mean, not all of them are about love. But so what made this title so fascinating is people look at it and they think, wait, why would I want to execute love? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but yeah, but the point is to say that, yeah, love can be obsessive. It could be obviously too romanticized, too idealistic. And then so what you're doing is you're trying to help the person. But here's the interesting thing. I mean, not to get into this too much, but the interesting thing is, by the way, he was conflicted because he wondered at some point, he's like, wait, am I doing this for her or am I doing this because I'm jealous of her? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, I'm not in that state. He was already at this yeah. point. I think he was in his 50s, like mid 50s. He's like, I don't have that kind of love. He's like, me and my wife have been married for like 30 years already, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's like, shit, am I doing this for her good or because like I can't see it? Like it's hard for me to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and we were talking about like jealousy. And yeah, so now mm-hmm. going into it, since we are on the topic of jealousy. So isn't it also, I mean, it is, I guess, but isn't it also a kind of interesting that when we are, so like with Yalom, right? Uh, so I know he's a writer or whatever, and obviously it's sort of juicy material, but also I'm assuming it was really hard for him to admit that as a therapist, like, wow, I'm jealous of my client, right? So what do you encounter when you think of, or when you see people who, are, who aren't able to kind of address, maybe not address is the right word, but acknowledge those deeper kind of like, negative feelings like jealousy mm-hmm. and envy uh like the fact that you know they're ashamed of you know the fact that they feel like these petty like these more mm-hmm. sort of petty. right right yeah that's the um the part that i don't yeah i mean the, the thing that i think i want to sort of tell people is you know I, there isn't anything wrong with the things that envy and jealousy are sort of telling you right and i think that's i think there's a very strong component particularly of jealousy also definitely of envy where people will say well if you feel those things and you must be insecure mm-hmm. right like that there's like you're petty and insecure and only like secure people who are you know who are large-minded like they're the people who have totally risen above any of those feelings and that i just don't <laughs> what's so bad like what's so petty about wanting to be special to someone Mm-hmm. like don't we all want to be special to someone mm-hmm. and like being True. special to someone kind of means that like they have affection for you that they don't have for someone else and so like yeah if you if you start trying to kind of organize the world such that like the person that you love doesn't love anyone else right and has no connections to anybody else okay now we're in a messed up place but that's because we're trying to control another person but like just the need the desire that's and i think admitting that makes people feel really vulnerable Mm -hmm. like saying i want to be special to you you know, I want you to to sort of see me in a special light, in a light that you don't see anybody else. That's really hard for people to admit, I think, because it's it it's putting a lot of how you see yourself sort of in the eyes of somebody else. And that's really that's a very vulnerable position to be in. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's also in the same thing happens with envy when you sort of, you know, I envy my neighbor's new car. Like I have to sit there and admit that my life that I want my life to take a certain shape and it hasn't taken that shape. And so that's a painful realization for me to have is to say, I want my life to look this way and it doesn't. And that's, that's hard. That's, that hurts. It hurts to say that hurts to say that to yourself. It hurts to say it out loud, right? It hurts to sort of like say the way that I value my life is kind of wrapped up in these other things, which is why we tend to sort of resist and go, oh, well, just don't be as materialistic. Mm -hmm. 
Like you can be materialistic. I'm not saying there's no such thing as materialism. There is, but it, but it's also the case that like your ability to see your life as successful sometimes is tied to the markers of success that you set for yourself, right? And this, those things are not always material desires. Sometimes it's you know I would love to the ability to like learn languages better than I currently do. Like that's not materialism, but it is. There's a mark. There's a certain mark of success that I've sort of set for myself, and I have to in feeling in beam like my envy is saying hey guess what you don't have those things and somebody else does and that sucks mm -hmm. yeah so you know a patient of mine might say something like or just whatever patient of anybody's might say something okay but then what do i do with that right and then somebody might say oh well easy right so you transform it you take that envy and you build something better and you tell yourself ha i use that envy for something good right you right. turn for you turn shit into gold yeah yeah right yeah. right which is like or you could just mourn the loss of the thing <laughs> Right. And just be like, you know what? Sometimes my life doesn't look like I want it to. And that's hard and that's painful. But you know what? Life is painful sometimes. And and feeling that pain is just part of what it means to care about that stuff and value those things. And this I think this impetus we have to, you know, nobody ever tells you you have to harness your joy <laughs> and channel it into something productive. Right? Right, right, right. It's right. perfectly fine for you to feel joy all day long and for no reason. In fact, you're supposed to find joy in the little things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all that stuff. But you're, but no, your negative emotions are never allowed to just be what they are. And they're never allowed to just tell you the message that they're, ha that they have for you. You have to like subdue them. I mean, I think, I really think like a lot of the channeling talk is really about control. It's yeah. about, it's about, you know, it's about putting those reins on that thing and just making it work for you. Yeah. Plus, you know, as far as even like uh, joy, right, like joy in excess or even like um, just somebody who's an extremely happy person on the surface, it sounds like a good thing. Right. But I mean, I could imagine um, maybe somebody next to you is not feeling so good. Maybe maybe your partner there, they feel bad about something that happened. Right. And you're taking this sort of uh, positive psychology sort of perspective, like, uh, no, it's okay. This is just making room for something uh, new to happen. Or uh, it's, um, or imagine you took this perspective. Oh, that's just your ego. That's just your ego. <laughs> or, I can or, imagine you doing that. No, 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 I've, done it, I've done it before. I don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He's but, learned. I've learned my lesson, but yeah. Or, or you tell them like, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Something is wrong with you feeling this way. Uh, you should be happy like me. Like uh, the way I'm seeing the world is the way you should see the world. If I can do it, you can do it. And that's, uh, it, it's total, a total lack of appreciation and respect for how that other person is feeling or what kind of the situation is sort of demanding of you and to not give it that respect. Um, and actually kind of align emotionally. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like you're uh, myopic, like you're blind to yeah. uh, what's really happening. And you're like out of touch. Right? And maybe like, self-centered too, because you're mostly mm -hmm. doing it for yourself. Like you don't want to see negativity in front of you. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's like, that's the big problem, right? Like you want to, you want to be like sort of a, ideally like a balanced sort of kind of force in the world. Fully integrated. And, 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 and actually be able to interact right with other people if you're somebody who let's say and I, I think you make this point in your book too where it's like oh uh you know somebody who let's say is um is a is a let's say a buddhist or they're like uh you know uh there is no self um 
I'm actually, I'm not going to do this justice, this argument, but the idea is if somebody like was really hardcore and they really were about controlling their emotions, being in the moment, all that, how could you really interact with other people who are of like, of that sort of uh, perspective? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, unless, I mean, people imagine that like, oh no, I'm giving off such a holy vibe <laughs> that it's going to transform how, how that person sees me and they're gonna yeah. it's gonna rub off on them and yeah, yeah, that yeah. happens yeah. um maybe in some kind of fantasy world and maybe it could happen one out of mm -hmm. you know a million times but realistically you can't interact with other people on that level right unless you're mm -hmm. able to kind of align with them mm -hmm. yeah. yeah there's a lot of positive psychology that you know i mean some of it's great i mean look there's lots of people who you know need help thinking about you know i, I think some people really need to be told like you can do this like you have more control than you think and you can be in charge of your life and and there are lots of people who don't feel like that and they need that message right but then there's a lot of positive psychology that and and also the kind of like hustle and grind culture and like a lot of that stuff even like neo-stoicism kind of falls into this is a is much more about yeah this kind of like like uh, really it's this emphasis on positivity becomes this way of kind of controlling not just you, but everybody around you where mm, it's, yeah. you know, when you, when you have the like sign that says good vibes only, sorry, you're not allowed to have no, nobody's I'm not, I'm going to eliminate all negativity from my life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes eliminating all negativity from your life is just eliminating your complicated relationships with other people people from your life you know and that's and it becomes this way of kind of orchestrating your whole life like pruning it into some kind of topiary or kind of like you know plucking people off of your stage so that you don't have to look at their sour faces or something like that anymore right right and then what are you left with because i mean right. if everybody's toxic then okay great you're on your own right <laughs> yeah. yeah and also i mean even if you think about like for example again like like let's say a teaching like let's say uh the ego right you 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 tell people okay there's the, again like kind of we were talking about this earlier you you let them know about the ego what it is right and how maybe the ego in its most toxic form um leads to all the misery and like horrible things that happen in the world wars genocide um deaths that kind of thing right and th there's a there is a value um to that in 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 a set no there's great value to that However, uh, it almost feels like when people take on these uh, teachings, it almost turns into this sort of black and white thing where like any ego at all is bad. Mm -hmm. Any negativity at all is bad. Any like it, it's interesting. It's like th these mm -hmm. things that were invented to sort of um, be like uh, uh, like basically like a treatment for a really toxic issue, like stoicism in itself, like on the surface like not even on the surface like it's it's a great philosophy right but yeah um but realistically i mean does it really can you really use it to deal with like your entire life and have a complete life not necessarily like you you almost want to have um like we were saying earlier like sort of a balance right, right? right. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 Okay, so uh, if you guys are okay with it, I want to actually, before we wrap up, turn the conversation. Please. Uh, can we yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. metal? Can we talk about what? Can we talk about metal and wrestling? Yes, let's do that. Yes. All right, cool. Krista, my first question is, why the, yeah. why, <laughs> so why Vader and the Ultimate Dragon behind you? Oh, that's a great question. So mm -hmm. I have this, I have two really distinct tastes in who I like as professional wrestlers. And like, mm -hmm. one of them is Vader, right? I love the like, big, intimidating power guys. Mm -hmm. And then I also love 
the like really technical sort of like you know that that kind of like matte prowess and like that sort of stuff so i weirdly enough like but those diverge so i have no idea why i like both of them i like both of them for very different reasons mm -hmm. but yeah it was like i can watch i can watch ultimate dragon invader matches like until the cows come home and be yeah, totally happy that's really cool, yeah. Because usually in wrestling, you get like one or the other. Either people right. love like high flying cruiserweights, or they love the big guys. Like for me, I mm -hmm. love the big guys. I actually, when I was a kid, I used to hate the cruiserweight matches. So like, oh, really? Still, yeah. Do you remember obviously the nitro matches and like so the first hour was like all cruiserweights. I'd literally go and do something. <laughs> I can't watch this. And then like the NWO comes out at nine o'clock. I'm like, cool. Now I'm gonna watch it. And they always made it so that like nine o'clock when Raw starts, that's when the NWO. Comes. <laughs> right. Of course. No, totally. I mean. I uh, so uh, one of my friends, he's super into like, so Leon included, obviously, but we have another friend who is really up to date on wrestling. So sometimes when I come over, he's watching it. Right. So I remember like a few years ago, uh, and I used to watch back in the attitude era, like mm -hmm, rock, mm -hmm. H, big show, whatever. So uh, I came over a few years ago. There's this guy named Bri uh, Daniel Bryan. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So he's not, he's not like a, a big guy or anything like that, but every time he would go like, and the crowd would go with him. Yes. Like, yes. Right, yes. Right. Yes. And like, I love this guy. And also he was a very technical guy yes. too. Like super, yeah, super mm -hmm. flexible, all of yeah. that. But I've also like back in the day, like, oh, Undertaker or Kane. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I was really big into that. So, you know, as far as that goes, like huge taste. Of, yeah. yeah. So wait, yeah. so then Krista, who are your favorites in each division, cruiserweight and heavyweight? Oh God, that's so hard. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Um. So I love, so for the big guys, like I love, I love Dr. Death. Wow. I love Vader. Um, I love, like, I wa I've started watching, like, New Japan a lot. And so, like, I love Ishii. And I like, wow. like, those. I like Suzuki, right? Like, that kind of, like, strong style type stuff. Like, all that. But then I also, like, Ricky Steamboat's, like, my, probably my number one super mm. favorite. Um, love Ultimo Dragon. I love, I love Daniel Bryan, like, He's probably not. I wouldn't like put him at like my top top, but like I love him. I love Zach Sabre Jr. I love the submission style. Like that's very cool. I love Nick Bockwinkle, right? Like the wow. old school, you know, like like do a headlock for five minutes. Like that's like I know that sounds crazy, but like I love all of that stuff. Like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, did you know that they're coming out with the Von Eric movie? And like, I think December I saw that. I yeah, saw yeah. the previews of that. I was like, whoa, that's gonna be crazy. Which is what, so Alan, yeah, the Von Erich family was like super prominent in the 80s. And I think Zach Efron is playing Carrie Von Erich. So yeah, yeah, to me, it's so shocking that they're doing that because like, no totally. offense to them, nobody knows who the fucking Von Erichs are. Because outside right. of like, you know, people who watch wrestling in the 80s, I wasn't even one of them. So I was like, wait, so they got like the best, like, I don't know if they're the best actors, but what are the more popular actors? Like the guy who did the bear, he's, I think, playing uh, Kevin Von Erich. Mm -hmm. And so like, they got all of these popular actors to do the Von Erich movie and like, nobody knows who this family is. That was so is. shocking to me. Yeah. I was like Zach Efron's gonna be in the Von Eric movie. What? Yeah. yeah. So that's so wild. In the, in the screen caps I've seen of the of the movie, he doesn't even look like himself. Like you could yeah. you could recognize Zach Efron, but something I don't know. Like the character, you could tell is like he really got into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I'm just curious. So in terms of like what you do now, did wrestling? I mean, not so much play a role, but did wrestling inform any of it? Like any of your philosophical work? think so but it does play the same it like weirdly wrestling and and metal kind of play the same role i feel like in my life which is that like it's you know it's the kind of thing that when you think of a philosopher and you think of an academic those are two things you absolutely do not think of but like mm -hmm. i've always felt a little bit like you know my position in academia is a little 
weird. Like I can't, I like I'm first generation college student. I came from a blue collar background. Like nobody in my family went to college. And so like, I, I'm in a different, I don't, I don't have like the typical sort of trajectory that people have when they get into academia. And so that's, so I've always felt like a little bit, there's a little part of me that feels like a little bit of an outsider. And so I feel like my love of wrestling and my love of heavy metal are just a little bit of a, they're kind of a, um, that part of me, they represent like that part of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Are you familiar with the work of Douglas Edwards? No, his name sounds really familiar. Dude. Okay. He was on our podcast about three years ago now. Uh, so yeah, he wrote a book called philosophy smackdown. It's about the, philosophy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, 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 uh, yes, yes. I do know who this is. I know his work. I haven't read the book though. Yeah. You but would, I know, you would, I know you would actually, yeah, you would actually love it. Yeah. We had an entire conversation about uh, the existential aspects of stone cold Steve Austin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. Awesome. Yeah, he's technically like the existential ideal, you know, this man who's like for himself, he's standing up to authority, perfectly authentic, yeah, yeah. yeah perfectly authentic, right, yeah. right, always doing what he wants. Uh, yeah, so he's sort of the docile, you know, the man for himself, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's so interesting, yeah, yeah. So it's so interesting how people can actually apply philosophy to professional wrestling oh, uh, concepts totally. or ideas, yeah, 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 yeah. And we even talked about, um, if you remember the that that uh, what was it, the, the year 2000 in WCW, where essentially kind of like they revealed pretty much all the behind the scenes stuff for like Jeff oh, Jarrett. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Jarrett, like, ended yeah. up playing that for Hulk Hogan. Yeah. So, like, his interpretation is like, yeah, you see, like, people don't like too much authenticity. So, you know, in philosophy, even though the thing is like, oh, yeah, be authentic, be authentic, but like, we also can't handle too much of it. And he mm -hmm. used a WCW example where, uh, like, the fans kind of were buying it for a little bit. And then after a while, they're like, wait, what the fuck is happening? Right, right. Which isn't like a real match. So, that's like the main event with Booker T and Jeff Jarrett. And then the other match, I'm sorry, that's the real match. And then the not real match is like Hogan, uh, like, putting his foot on Jared and then walking out with the title. So he's like, yeah, man, they confuse the hell out of them. And speaking of that, what's so funny is like Jeff Jarrett has the saying, if you confuse them, you lose them. And that's exactly <laughs> what WCW did in all of 2000. He's like, we lost everybody, man. He's like, literally yeah. people come in, they buy tickets to bash at the beach. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're expecting to see Hogan versus Jared. Great. Then Hogan and Jared is the first match. Okay, fine. Okay. Oh, wow. They're not even fighting. Oh, Jared's laying down for him. Okay. What the hell did we pay for? Okay. So Hogan's still the champion. No, Russo comes out. Russo says, forget Get that belt. That belt is gone. New champion is Jeff Jarrett. Okay, so now we have a new champion. How, who's his number one contender? Somehow it's Booker T. Fine, mm -hmm. let's give Booker T a title shot tonight out of all times. Booker T is now the new champion. And it's like, yeah, it's also convoluted. Yeah. But yeah, so Douglas talks about that. He's like, yeah, man, a lot of times what happens is, uh, you know, you try, again, harmony, right? You try mm -hmm. to create this perfect harmony between like what's going on in the back and what's going on story-wise. And they just yeah. completely fucked it all up. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's the part I've always found that like, that's the part of wrestling that I've always found philosophically really interesting is like, what exactly is the kind of suspension of belief, right? Suspension of disbelief that is required for to, for you to enjoy wrestling, right? Because you, on the one hand, it's like, well, you know, you know, the, the storylines are predetermined, like you, you sort of, and you know, you can follow the kind of like business element or the booking element of what's happening. So you're like, oh, okay, LA night is over. So like, maybe we're going to start pushing him and like, what's that? What, how, that, how is that going to turn out? So you get wrapped up in that aspect of it, but then you also want to be wrapped up in the kayfabe part of it right like you want to be wrapped up you're like into the you're like what's gonna happen with jay so you know what i mean like and you want to be part of you want to be inside the story so you exist in this bizarre headspace where you're sort of both inside and outside the story at the same time and enjoying different kinds of elements and you're right there has to be this like balance between the two of them because you're not in it for just one or the other 
Yeah. And what's so interesting about that, and like, as we start to wrap up, what's so interesting also about that is like, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, when I guess maybe even 25 now, like when the NWO storyline hit, I mean, it was really a suspension of, uh, I mean, and not even a suspension. I think people really just didn't know, but I think now it's a little bit corny. So like they did just did a segment where Jey Uso quit the WWE. Yeah. And you're like, it's like, it's it's cool. I mean, it's nice. And I I get what they're doing because they're pushing the match to WrestleMania. Fine. But like, yeah, I think like now, like this sort of blurry line, it's over. I, I just don't think like at this point, people, 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 I think for the most part, what it is, I mean, maybe it's a good thing because before maybe when people watch the NWO, they were like, oh, I want to see what happens next, like Crash TV, you know? But at this point, I think like if people are watching it, they genuinely love it. I don't think there really is any display. I think people for the most part know what is and isn't the story. Yeah, line. yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. So, Alan, final questions for Krista before we wrap up? Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work and, of yes. course, eventually buy the book, uh, where yes. can we do yeah, so the book is available pr- for pre-order right now. It is uh, you can go to Oxford University Press and order it there. Um, it's also available on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Bookshop.org. Um, and then I am uh, I'm on the brain rot of social media, so <laughs> I'm on Twitter or X now. I guess I gotta call it that. Uh, I have a professional. I have an Instagram account which is Prof KK Thomason. Um, I'm on TikTok for reasons that I. Can haven't quite understood yet mm-hmm. uh but yeah so you can follow <laughs> me in all those places I love awesome. it. All right. So thank you so much for coming on. And this literally Thanks for meant, having oh, this me. Fun. This met all of my expectations. I knew oh, this was fab- going to be this fabulous. good. Yeah. <laughs> all the all across the board. Perfection. Oh, Pure man. flawless unity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's over it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Crystal. We'll talk to you soon. Take all right. Care. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, on Twitter, where Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.